All right, friends, you are in for an incredibly engaging conversation with the one and only Tyler Burns. Let me tell you about Tyler. Tyler is the vice president of The Witness, which is a black Christian collective that engages issues of religion, race, justice, and culture from a biblical perspective. Tyler is also co-host of Pass the Mic podcast, along with Jamar Tisby. Uh, I know some of you have read Jamar's best-selling book, The Color of Compromise, and I would highly recommend that book, and so does Tyler. Tyler, what do oh God, I, I just, I'm, I'm, st- I'm just still spinning after having this conversation. I just had this conversation with Tyler. I'm recording this intro after the fact, and my head is spinning. My heart is um, spinning. I was trying to think of another word. Couldn't think of anything. Tyler, I mean, I, he... He um, helped me to understand some of the racial tensions going on today in culture, in the church. He helped me understand blind spots that many white evangelicals have in the race conversation. I, I just, I, you'll hear, I mean, I, you won't hear a lot of me. I, I do talk in the podcast, but I'm just sitting there just absorbing the stuff that Tyler talks about, it is so incredibly good and challenging. So I encourage you to go check out Tyler's stuff. If you, if you go to uh, thewitnessbcc.com, thewitnessbcc.com, check out the materials and resources that they have there. You can also check out his podcast, Pass the Mic. We talk about all kinds of stuff in this episode, and uh, Tyler, Tyler gets fired up, and I, I'm so excited about that. Um, there's so much I want to say, but I just want you to listen to this. Also, we did record this for a a YouTube conversation. So if you want to check out the YouTube conversation, you want to see Tyler, um, in all of his glory, you can check out PrestonSprinkle.com, my YouTube channel and see the conversation there. And, uh, I just encourage you guys to just listen, to just observe. I mean, I know as he even says in this podcast, it's, it's really common for, People like like me, uh, Christian leaders, white Christian leaders, people in a majority context to always feel like we need to kind of voice our opinion or um, declare something to be good and true or right or wrong or beautiful. And we just haven't been very good listeners and learners. And so I want us all to be a listener and learner in this conversation. It is so incredibly helpful. So without further ado, I'm going to shut up and I want to welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the last time, the one and only Tyler Burns. Hey friends, I am here with my friend uh, Tyler Burns. Tyler is um, a co-founder of The Witness, a black Christian collective. Tyler is also a pastor, a thinker, and um, yeah, we've got a lot of mutual friends in common. This is the first time I'm talking to you, Tyler. Can't believe it. <laughs> Thanks. No, so it's much an honor to be here. Channel. Yes, yeah, honor to be here. I just want to correct something, just so people don't think I am, but I'm I'm not a co-founder. I'm just the vice president, so I don't want people to to get upset if, if they hear, oh, you're a co-founder and this and that. And then they're like, no, I co-founded it. So I just want to make that clear. <laughs> just want to make it clear. Just, yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 You're uh, co- uh, vice president or co-president? Yes. 
Vice, vice president, vice, vice president. president. Jamar's the head honcho. Okay. Jamar's the man, the myth, the legend. So, so yeah, uh, I got in touch with uh, Tyler through our mutual friend, uh, Jamar Tisby. Um, a lot of you guys have probably read his book, um, uh, The Color of Compromise. Is that the title? Yeah, um, that's right. And his big, I mean, he's becoming kind of an up and coming voice. I'm really excited that, his, that that's happening. So, um, hey, well, why, let's just start, man. Let's just dive in. We'd love to hear sure. your thoughts on how you have been processing, thinking through, responding to the last four to six weeks with all the talk about race. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got protests. We have riots. We have um, change happening. Mm-hmm. How's it going, man? How, how are you thinking through all this? Yeah, so I think it's interesting because how we process the last four to six weeks is um, a mirror into how we've processed the past seven or eight years. And so I think this is a conversation that hasn't just happened over the past month to two months, um, even going back to um, February with Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, but also going back to Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Eric Garner and so many other names and hashtags that we can say. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think this is a moment of, of reckoning. And I think I've said multiple times on our podcast, Pass and Mike, that I think this is a a moment where the church is in danger on the brink of losing moral credibility um, in society. And not just simply because of this issue, but I think with a particular group of people who look like me and who have a unique experience um, and who see the inconsistency of the church over the past seven to eight years, and then kind of that gives them a lens to view the inconsistencies of the church on issues and matters of race and society and justice and culture, throughout its entirety, uh, which kind of produced the color of compromise and produces a lot of the works that we see now critiquing the church. Um, and so I think we're, we're, at, we're at this place where the church has an opportunity to um, establish, reestablish its moral credibility and to take the hard necessary steps of repentance and repair um, that the scriptures outline for us in times like this. But I I'm looking at it not just as a member of the broader American church, but as a member of a specific tribe. Um, So as a member of the black church and as a pastor within the black church, I'm looking at it from the from the context and the perspective of um, is a moment of of leadership for many of us. And it's a moment uh, and an opportunity for us to to speak where our voices have been muted and to shout where our voices have been silenced and so i want to take advantage of that of that opportunity that's good man yeah the way you're wording things is so clear and concise and just really helpful um you the the moral credibility of the church can you i want to can you unpack that a little more how has the church lost its moral credibility uh in this moment yeah so i you know and i think i think again this is not just a moment i think this is a this is, it's a systemic historic pattern of, and I think, again, Color of Compromise talks a lot about this, but even before Color of Compromise, it's, it's grandfather or godfather, I guess you can say, was divided by faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And within that book, it talks a lot about some of our, our great leaders and our, our, the founding fathers of the faith in America, and even beyond that, the, some of the people who facilitated revivals in America, and how the church how the church allowed them to hold different, the church allowed them to claim to believe in the gospel, but not live the the ethical implications of the gospel and the applications of the gospel. So you think of someone like George Whitfield, who was a phenomenal preacher and leader and revivalist, but yet 
influenced Georgia to overturn their prohibition of slavery, right? So at the same time was like, yes, slaves need to be preached to, yes, they need the gospel, yet I'm gonna own them. And so it's like, well, wait a second. So there's a difference between what you say and preach and how you live. And so I think there's there's the context of, of okay, this is in a long pattern. If you talk about the founding of denominations, if you talk about some of our great leaders and heroes who had uh, abhorrent views on race, not just in slavery, but also in in value, right? But then I think secondarily, I think there's also um, this opportunity where many of us are looking at the intersection and so many people who follow us at The Witness, they're at the intersection of having been embraced and accepted by white evangelicalism or being a part of white evangelical institutions or schools or educational facilities. And what they, what they come in contact with is a sense in which people say they love us and people say they value us and people say they want us there. But now we're seeing that that love is limited. That love is part of us, not all of us. And so if you if you say you love me, then you'll care about when I'm mistreated. Mm. If you say you love me, you'll care about the concerns of my community. If you say you love me, you'll protect and advocate for me. Mm. But we're not seeing that. And we haven't seen that over the past eight to 10 years in particular um, as the the you know, police brutality instances and cases have gone viral. And so now we're looking back and we're saying, well, where was all this love that you're talking about? Love God, you know, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Where's all this love y'all were talking about, right? Um, And so I think it's credibility in that regard to reckon with history, but then also to um, reckon with the ways in which people have said that they believed in things and said that they promote things that they haven't lived out. And that's true with all of us. We're all a little inconsistent as propaganda would say. But I think whenever you're in a power position, it drastically affects the people who are uh, not in the positions of power and authority and wealth. And it has drastically affected so many of us. And I think that's why you're seeing the tension, um, especially from black and brown Christians right now. That's super helpful. So, you, I mean, just uh, we talked offline quite a bit before, um, but you, you know, were raised in a black church, but then you had a stint yeah. where you kind of, I mean, you went to Liberty University, not necessarily <laughs> a historic, you know, black <laughs> university. No, man. <laughs> and, and you swam in the waters of uh, um, reformed Christianity for a time and that, yeah. you know, and, and well, why don't you tell us about that journey? how you've, sure. you're now reflecting on it. And then that might kind of spawn a few other questions we can kind of chase down. Yeah. So there's really kind of three movements of that journey. So I, I was raised in a, in the black church, but I was educated in a white uh, Christian private school. So in my early years as um, right after I was born, it was interesting because my family was, we're not wealthy in any regard, but my parents wanted to pray, place such a primer, primacy on education and so they they sent me to the best school. So they actually, I mean, we almost had nothing, but they would scrape up money to send me to a private school because they wanted me to have the phonetics and the training at a young age. And, and back then it was all about the education. It was all about, you know, man, get, get as much education as you possibly can. It gives you an opportunity to not grow up in abject poverty like we like we did, you know, that was the whole mentality. And so they sent me to what they thought was the best school, but at the same time, and then also it was a Christian school as well, so that was a plus. But at the same time, that school did not teach me anything about who I who I actually am, not just as a Christian man, but as a black Christian man. Was it, so was it, it almost it, exclusively white? Like or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was well, well in the early years, you know, you talk about 
you know, early education to elementary, it wasn't as much, you know, it was kind of mixed. But when you get to middle school, high school, it's almost exclusively white. Um, and so I grew up there and basically there was there was no there was no affirmation and no explanation of my cultural heritage and how that intersected with my Christian faith. As a matter of fact, people would say you should erase that. Like that's non-important. That's not what we focus on. Of course, you can say that because, you know, I mean, you know. You, you don't think you have a culture, right? That's what that's what they were thinking. Oh, well, there's the culture is for people on the margins. Like culture is their thing, yeah. but it's not as important as your faith. It's not as important as how you walk um, with God, as though those two are separated, right? Yeah. Which was the issue. And so I kind of had this movement of, I don't even know who I am. So then I, you know, transfer after two years of college to Liberty University, and my first semester at Liberty is the 2008 Obama election. Uh, so. You know, I'm in this culturally white setting, but I join a black fraternity and then I'm also navigating the Obama election. And what was another breaking point for me is kind of a second movement was um, the night of the Obama election. And again, back then, you know, I was very conservative and man, you know, you're supposed to do this and believe this and it's all about abortion and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it may be. And when Obama won and they announced it, it was in the Vine Center, which is a big, you know, um, you know, the auditorium there, 13,000 people can be seated there. Yeah. And when when they announced it on the big screens, the Fox News announcement, of course, um, all the black students ran down to the bottom and were celebrating. Wow. And there was just jubilance and joy and my frat brothers and my sorority sisters. And I mean, just I mean, it, it was probably like five, six hundred black students celebrating. And then all the white students were around um, in the stands with their arms folded like this. Wow. And I looked around and, and, and I wasn't part of that group. And I just looked and I said, wait, something's not right about this. And then some of the comments that were made by the people around me, um, in frustration and anguish and, um, you know, some of the snide cultural comments made me say, ah, something's not right about this. Um, and I don't even necessarily agree politically, but I'm like, something's off. And so it kind of, you know, led me to ask some questions and to do some things that I hadn't done before. Because again, you're trained in an educational mindset that says, okay, white is right. Republican is right. All these things, evangelical, this is what you're supposed to be. And then the final movement was after I left Liberty and came back home um, to serve in my local church, you know, 2012 um, to a lesser extent. And then 2014, for sure, with Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, it, it really showed and revealed. I simply, I remember the night I found out, it was the night that Mike Brown was killed. I remember I looked at the story and something came up on Twitter or something. And I was sitting across from my dad. It was a Saturday night and we were getting ready for church. And I said, this is about to be a big story. And he was like, what are you talking about? So I told him the, just the brief of you know the story as, as much as we knew at, at that point. I said, it's about to be a big story. And he was like, oh, okay. And then you know I put up on Facebook something real innocuous. I was like, man, I hate to see the loss of life, unarmed black man, hate to see that. And people just attacked me. I mean, it was just as simple as that. I was just like, hate to see it. And people just, uh, I mean, went off. I mean, all my white friends and white pastors and you're indicting cops and, you know, you're anti-cop and you're, and I was like, wow. no, I just said, I'm, I'm just lamenting the loss of someone who looks like me and could have probably been me or could have been someone I knew. Yeah. Um, and the vitriol and the condescension and the paternalism and the anger and the denial. Hmm. Um, Ibram Kendi says that the heartbeat of racism is denial. 
And if the heartbeat of racism is, is denial, then I like to flip that and say the drumbeat of racism is control. Wow. So it's not, and then also control, which is controlling our thoughts, controlling our tone, controlling the way we speak, how we speak, if we speak. And people started to exercise wild control, or attempt to exercise wild control over me, even though I wasn't a part of their denomination. I, I didn't answer to them. I didn't, yeah. but they thought they had rights to control my voice. And that led to the great awakening in my mind of no, this is not, this is something different than just a disagreement. This is your attempt to control me. This is your attempt to exercise your authority over me as though you think you're, you have rights to. Um, so those kind of were three movements of, you know, realizing that something's off. And at each point I realized it, but then at the last point, there was kind of a breaking point. What do you think it, I mean, from your vantage point, what do you think that is? Like, What's drive? Is it? Is it just blatant racism? Is it ignorance? Is it um, a level of power and control that people maybe yeah. not even realize that they're doing? Or what? What would that? That yeah. just a response when you said, you know, mourning the death of a of a black. How old was he? Eighteen? I mean, he's a teenager. Yeah, eighteen. Yeah, just graduated from high school. Um, and I, as a Christian, even even if he was armed <laughs> and you know there and there's the you know um you know there's some uh, it's not like he yeah i don't know there's did he did he actually try to get the cop's gun or there was like he was we don't know we don't know that okay i didn't yeah there's a, a justice department ruling and stories, you know but, there's conflicting stories and yeah. people have thoughts about what what really happened and, and how it happened and you know yeah there's a lot there's a lot back and forth with that and I don't want to like all that mat matters, but not to your state. Your statement: this kid got killed. That's a tragedy. I mourn that. Like even if he was guilty, like that's still a tragedy. Same with like, can George I talk Floyd. about you that? Know, people saying yeah. you know George Floyd is a criminal. He did all this stuff, and you know he's strung out on meth. And it's like blah blah. Okay, may maybe it's still an absolute tragedy, and it has a there's a symbolic power of that death that murder um that has deep deep complicated historical and cultural roots so i don't know so I, i'm i don't yeah. want to answer what do you think is was driving that backlash that you faced when you posted that well i think it's a number of different things but one of the things that you mentioned that i think is very important to understand about the differences here is and sorry you might hear my kids um they're crying in the background <laughs> i got a two-year-old and a one-year-old so like, <laughs> yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful um but you know one of the things that you might hear and and might see is that there's a difference in how white christians and black christians approach a situation like this and this is one thing people do not talk about they don't emphasize is that there's a cultural approach to everything it's not just ethnic it's not just race but it's also the cultural approach to everything which is a little bit different so you know white evangelical christians tend to approach things from a cognitive perspective mm -hmm. right it's why their services are the way that they are it's about intellectual rational cognitive thought right so you you, you have maybe a little bit of of emotion here and there, but the emotion is is heavily secondary to the cognitive. The word must be preached, like, and then they they take that same reality into culture, right? So you have the whole um, very famous like Ben Shapiro, you know, facts don't care about your feelings, right? Well, it's about the cognitive. That is what is approached. So what do they do when they see 
a particular case like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. They definitely did with Ahmaud Arbery. It was obnoxious. Um, but what they do is, what are the facts? What are the facts? What are the facts? What are the facts? So they think first. Yeah. Right? Now, in our culture, we feel first. So it's yeah. emotive. So it's the cognitive versus the emotive. So people don't talk about this. And, and so we're trying to rationalize with people. We're trying to reason with people who only think cognitively and who suppress the emotive. And we come and the first thing, the first thing white evangelical Christians do is they look for the facts. First thing we do is we feel the pain. So, so we feel the pain. And so that's the thing we feel first. And that's what we engage with first. And they're like, no, so interrupt our, our, our pain engagement with facts. They're trying to, they're trying to do, they're trying to be investigators. Right. And so again, it's the cognitive versus the emotive. So they elevate that above. And, and there's, there's theological roots to this too, because there's a level to which there's a theological emphasis um, upon the mind and not the emotions. Right. So the emotions might even be bad in some circles, right? Mm. Well, what, it doesn't, you know, I've, I've heard people say in, in these different streams, evangelical streams, you, we don't need to get all, it doesn't matter. Like all that stuff, you don't need to get excited. You don't need to just preach the word as it's given. And, and you know, people, no, you don't need emotionalism. It's this and that. And we come from a culture where it is, it is in our blood to emotively respond to the word. That's where call and response comes in with the black church. The call and response, it's it's a shared experience. Mm-hmm. So that when, and, and this is another thing that's kind of off to the side, but it's another reason why people are scared of black church expression. Like they're afraid of it. And so they feel like it's, they're like, oh, it's, you know, is this, you know, is this emotionalism? Is this, you know, you just, you're, you're losing control and all these other things not understanding that it's in our genes, it's in our blood, mm-hmm. even going back to not even just, you know, enslaved uh, Africans, but also going back to the continent itself. It's in our blood to engage with things in a full body, the physicality, the emotion, mm-hmm. the shout, the the hoop, the, the scream, all those things are native to us. And so people don't understand that. So they come in and they're like, facts, 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 facts. And we're like, wait a second, we're engaging with this emotionally, not pushing away the facts, but we engage, we, we approach a situation to feel, yeah. not to look for something to prove one side or the other. We have a felt, we have an embodied theology, we feel it in our bodies. Yeah. So I think people don't understand that, and that's why a lot of this is tension, and then people come in and exercise control. And then and then to a second secondary extent, you know, I think there is an assumption that white evangelical Christians, because this is taught in American culture, everything is about them. Every conversation is about them. Um, every every argument ultimately ends with them. We have to answer to them, mm-hmm. and it is it is a it is a while 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 it is not in the same as you know, okay. We think of racism as like oh someone wearing a KKK hood or saying the N word, but white supremacy is also white normativity, which is the centering of whiteness as the true and right expression over everything else, and so our way is the right way. Mm. Our way is the good way. Our way is the biblically faithful way. Mm-hmm. Our way is the theologically accurate way. <laughs> right? And so that's above all other ways. Yeah, yeah, the black church, yeah. I mean, they produce some good music, but you know, they got a doctrine problem, right? Why? Because we don't process doctrine the way you process doctrine. Yeah. And so something must be wrong with us. Not I need to learn from them. Something's wrong. You need a revival. You need yeah. that. You need a reformation. You need this. You need that. 
You see what I'm saying? So it's like they, yeah. it, they center themselves and place themselves as controllers. Yeah. And that is what is taught culturally. It is taught culturally that, you know, when, when you only hear when you only hear the heroes of your particular cultural history, you're trained to think that everybody else's heroes are secondary. That's how you're trained. Yeah. And so it's it's the truth in education, the truth in, in theology as well. So I think those are two things that are really yeah. kind of the things behind the things. I'm trying not to give you the stock answers of like, oh, it's this and it's that. And I know some people are like, man, just, you know, whatever. But it's if you really want to get to what's going on and what's happening, that's what's happening. Dude, I, I, I'm going to speak on behalf of my white audience this is so <laughs> incredibly informative and helpful. Um, my mind's kind of ahead, spinning right now. I, um, okay. So I want to go back. So I, I want to, I guess not, not to confess, like it's a sin, but acknowledge yeah. that the way you describe the kind of cognitive facts, that's me, man. Like, so, and maybe I think part of it is, as I just, I'm processing part of it's a personality. Part of it is the culture I was, right, right. I was raised in. Right. Would you agree with that? Like there's certain personalities. Absolutely. That yeah. That's um, me too. I'm definitely cognitive, right. intellectual, rational, love theology. Love yeah. that. And I'm not hearing you say one's right or wrong. It's just understanding the differences is huge. Right. Under, just simply understanding the, the way different cultures respond to something. Um, without saying one's right and the other's wrong. Or would, I mean, so is it wrong for me as I acknowledge that I am Barry when I hear anything? I'm like, what What, what are the facts? Like, that's only my MO. Should I, is that okay? Um, should I not do that? Or should I at least acknowledge that that is one culturally shaped response but not the only way? Is that, I, I, I kind of hear you going there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I, you know, people's personalities are, you know, shaped by everyone's created with the image of God. And so our personalities, even the way in which we approach things like God has a hand in that. And so I don't look at anyone's personality and be like, that's, you know, that's a wrong, you know, that's a wrong personality or that's a wrong bent. But here's what I would say is that whenever you enter into a situation that's culturally different from yours, don't assume you know everything. Right. You know, and and here's and here's the reality is um, people become and I was actually talking about this this morning. People become armchair experts very quickly about cultures they've never engaged with. They've never engaged, but they just assume. And a part of that is our acculturation. You know, when you have certain media sites or news sites, certain, you know, theologies and theologians and denominations that assume certain things about a particular community. What you what you have is it is it you know reflexively and and it's it's basically a tool of mass discipleship for how people within that denomination view a certain personality a certain group a certain ethnic expression, um, and so what we assume here is that we assume that we have all the knowledge necessary to be able to make a strong declaration about what something is or isn't, okay. and let's take it to the gospel. The Son of Man came not. No, no, here's but here's what Jesus says in the broader context of that of that of that verse. He says, the Gentiles, they lord their authority over you. They lord authority, but it shouldn't be so with you. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So when I enter into a space, I come to relinquish the power and the authority that culture has decided I should have. 
right? And this is this is the case for me when it comes to my black sisters, right? So when it comes to black women, mm-hmm. culture has said I'm more important than them. Mm-hmm. So as I in, engage with their perspective, my perspective is I'm right. Oh no, we're not like this. No, that's not us. That's not who we are. No, no, no. You, I mean, you know me. Come on now. You, you wouldn't. But again, what's that? That's lording my perspective over them as though it is the right, you know, way of, of approaching it when I haven't lived a day in their shoes. I don't, I don't live in their experience. I don't know what they face. I may know it cognitively, but I don't know it experientially. And so I come into the scenario not to be served as the authority, but to serve in mutuality. And so whenever we get in a cultural discussion, never approach a culture, it doesn't matter what your personality is, assuming that you have everything ready. Even if you've read, this is the thing. So people get, people get, they're like, oh, I've read that book. I've read this book. I've read, and it's the, the mindset is still wrong, which is, oh no, I still have the authority. I still have the, the right reason. I still know what I'm talking about. And, and, and that again is an exercise in white normativity which is, you know, the cousin of white supremacy. It is, it is overruling. It is, it is ruling over a group of people saying, I can understand your culture. And here's the unfortunate reality. Most white evangelical Christians have not had to hear black history. They've not had to learn from black theologians. They've not had to sit under black pastors. They've not had to engage with black culture. But yet whenever a situation happens, they come in and tell us what it is and what it isn't. And I'm like, you don't even know us. And then they're like, man, my black friends or Candace Owens says this, so it must be true. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't even know us. You don't know us experientially. Yeah. You don't know us in um, any sort of way. You just know what has been mass produced to you. And then you assume based upon that. And so we never enter a scenario assuming that we know, yeah. um, especially when, within power dynamics and culture. We come in ready to serve and ready to learn and be teachable. So good. Um that's <laughs> so many questions, man. Um, Fire away. Let's do it. That's well, why we're here. Just, I just <laughs> the, the tail end of what you're when you're talking, it made me think like part of the problem is that we lack multi-ethnic uh, church communities. And, I, and, I, and I'm kind of re- I don't know, like I, I think. um yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking through all that. I've been passionate about that for a while. But what, one thing I do, um, what, one thing I really don't like is when uh, there's not true integration, but it's just assimilation. And, and I know, I, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't think I know a blatantly racist white person. But I know a lot of white people with a lot of underlying unchecked, just ignorance, bias, presuppositions. That's just, it's lingering beneath the surface, you know? So even when it comes to like multi-church expressions, like I, I don't, um, I, I don't know any personally, any white people would have any problem with like a, a black pastor, but I think they would have a problem with the black pastor bringing black culture into their church. I think they would have a problem with that. When does the service end? It ends when I get done preaching, man. I mean, like, <laughs> no, no, like I, I've got plans. I've got like, there's, there's so right. much you know, clock time. It's about me. I'm at the center. There's so much cultural assumptions we have that are, that are shaped by, I love your phrase, white normative experience, even if it's not quite white supremacy per se, but it's very much white normative. And we're fine with people of color coming into that context and assimilating. Um, 
And that's, I think that's a huge, huge problem. The, 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 so I think the lack of genuine integration and celebration of different cultures in, in a church context might be part, part, mm-hmm. part of the problem mm-hmm. why white people are kind of being bathed in a more white ideology without even realizing right. it. Does that, is that, and, and correct me if I, if I'm, if right. I'm, or augment, correct, whatever, oh, yeah. <laughs> agree with whatever. I, I just, that, that was something I was thinking about when you were talking at the end there. Yeah. Like I think, um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting, right? Because I, I, I grew up in a context where I was part of a black church. So I was majority black, but there was a, a big push in movement, even in my father's vision of the church too. Uh, craft a multi-ethnic church experience as best as possible. Like, and this was before multi-ethnic was a thing, you know, back then it was multicultural. And so there was this push to, you know, craft a multi-ethnic church experience. And, you know, from, I think he said from segregation to integration, from integration to reconciliation, reconciliation to um, celebration, you know, all these types of things that, you know, language that we had long before was in books. And, I think there's something good about that. I think there's something good about the um, the level to which we're desirous of a beloved community, as King would say. But I also think that there is there is a problem because multi-ethnic church spaces um, tend to revert back to white normative expression, yeah, and so exactly. they, they tend to revert back to white cultural normativity. And so even even like let's take for example something that you said earlier that you know hey I don't I don't really think I know any you know racist white folks and you know I don't think anybody would have a problem with a black pastor, but they have underlying unchecked. Here's what a lot of us are making the distinction of right now: we don't distinguish between the two, mm. because here's what we see: you don't have to be a, a you know red blooded like angry racist calling me the N word to oppress me. To, to limit opportunities, to try to control me, mm-hmm. to try to center yourself even in our friendship and relationship. You don't have to be. Like you can actually propagate the same, you can love me, <laughs> you can be in relationship with me, you can be my friend, you can be my pastor, you can be in my wedding, and still propagate the same mentality of inferiority in, our power, in the power dynamics of our friendship and our relationship. And so whenever people are like, man, I don't really know. And I'm like, that's great. I'm glad. But I bet you know some people who need to be challenged on their ethnocentrism, who need to be challenged on their normative expression, to be challenged on what they expect of certain groups of people. I think you know way more people than what you think, right? And so that's one of the things that we we kind of say because in a in a multi-ethnic church expression, people are so excited about us getting in the door together. We're gonna worship together. But the problem is the worship is still centered around one cultural expression. It's still monocultural. It's multi-ethnic monocultural. What songs are we singing? Right. Okay, so we only singing your songs? Yeah. <laughs> only singing songs written from your social location? Yeah. How's this multi-ethnic? Like, what are you talking about? Well, that's the oh, assimilation, so the, right? I mean, you're, 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 right, we, can, exactly. we, we can have tons of black people, people of color in our church, as long as they sing white songs. Like, it's, it's you're assimilating exactly. into a white normative. Culture. It's it's the it's the the cultural cues. It's the sermon illustrations. It's the things that are addressed from the pulpit. It's and so the bigger issue is, man. It's great if we have multi ethnic church spaces, and um, and and I think that's a great goal to have. But the problem is, who is erased and who has to become less of themselves in this multi ethnic church space? And what has typically happened is, black women take a back seat. Black women are erased. They're invisible. 
they're ignored. Um, that's why I'm so glad you had Lisa on. I mean, you know, even that act, I just, I just, I'm so glad you had Lisa on because in this conversation, black women are typically ignored and suppressed. And it's like, okay, well, the only expression we really need to get to is, is two men. Two men really need to talk about this, mm-hmm. right? Which again, it's another cultural expression that's erased. And so, you know, I was talking to um, uh, somebody we respect and admire years ago, um, Andy Crouch on the podcast on P- Pass the Mic. And um, he was talking about how, and this is his words, not mine. He said, I'm less concerned about, you know, how many multi-ethnic churches there are. I'm more, more concerned about the white church addressing white supremacy <laughs> within its church. Mm. And that, hey, it would be great if we got together. But if if we address the long legacy of white norm- normativity, and the ways in which our theology has been held culturally captive and have used as a tool to oppress and suppress people when it's liberative and when it's gospel loving and when it's free to, it's it's you know the promotion of freedom and love and grace and and truth we'll be better off even if we don't all come together under the same roof right address that and then even if we all don't come together and we don't have that kumbaya moment we'll get in the presence of Jesus <laughs> But address what exists within your church. And if you address what exists within your church, we'll all be blessed by that. We'll all be better off because there are people who have been trained and discipled to love as Christ calls us to love. I had, that's so good. I had a, do you know Eugene Cho? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I talked to him about how they went about cultivating a multi-ethnic church, I felt like that was one of the best and I'll say it, he would probably say attempts because he would say we never arrived. It was super hard, even to this day. Twenty years later, it was I'm, you know he's no longer there. But um, would you agree? Is that was that be a, 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 a an approach um, where right. there's genuine not assimilation, but a genuine attempt to celebrate and integrate different ethnic expressions? Well, yeah, and I don't I don't know all of their the things that they've done, but I you know I know Eugene Cho is a is a great voice, and yeah. uh, you know another guy that I. Two guys that I would really love to highlight who have done, I think, a really great job of this is Rich Velotis at uh, New Life Christian Fellowship in um, in New York City. Yeah. Um, and then also Albert Tate as well. Um, they've done a really great job out in California. I think that's Fellowship Monrovia, I think. That's the name of their church. But those are two churches that I think have really modeled what it looks like. And, and I tend to lean towards multi-ethnic church expressions that are led by people of color, you know, men and women of color. I, I tend to appreciate that and, and honor and value that in a certain way because it, it again, does not reinforce the dynamics um, of, you know, white normativity and control. And it's not like it has to be for it to be a healthy church. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there, there's just a way in which it's done um, in certain sectors. But you have to understand, like, when you talk about multi-ethnic church, it varies based upon the population. It varies based upon, you know, the, the you know, the ethnic diversity of a city. Right. You know, it's going to be different in Idaho. It's going to be different in, you <laughs> know, all these Idaho, places. Man. You see, it's like totally different, right? Yeah. But what do you do in that? Well, well, you know, and people get stuck. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage people with this. This kind of leads me into something that I think is really important. Don't give yourself excuses to not change excuses to not address what lies within you. Because see, here's what here's what tends to happen is white pastors be like, well, I tried, you know, what do we do? We just, do we bring in a gospel choir? Do we do this? And it's like, it's not about performative expressions. It's not about performative acts. It's about solidarity. It's about advocacy. Um, it's about loving your neighbor well and, and that love leading you to justice. As Cornell West would say, justice is what love looks like in public, right? Wow. 
Um, so that leads you, that love leads you to act justly in public, to do justice and love mercy. But don't give yourself an excuse. Like, so for the pastors who are like, man, I, I you know, we tried this and we hired this guy and we did this. And, and, and they're like, okay, well, we did our one thing. And then it's like, mm-hmm. what must I do to be safe? I kept the law. <laughs> I mean, I kept all the law from, from, from birth. Like I'm good. Okay. Well, sell all you have and give it to the poor. <laughs> Goes away sad. Oh no, it's too much. It's too hard. And I think sometimes the standards of the gospel and the standards that God is is trying to push for us, because there has been such divide and such oppression um, and such violence done to people of color in our bodies, that now what what it takes to reconcile, what it takes to bring justice is so heavy and it's so intense and it's so um, weighty that sometimes we say, well, I'd just rather not do anything. And no, that's that's where God has called you to press in. That's actually where God has called you. Um, to not give yourself the excuse, the out. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it doesn't really affect me because I live in X city, Y city. Nobody in my church is talking about this. Nobody in my community cares about this. Mm-hmm. It, the kingdom of God, you're still a part of it. And there's still people um, who need your voice and who needs who need you to address it in your church yeah. um, in the way God calls you to. So I, I want to go back to something you said about the illustration of, you know, somebody can be in your wedding, they could be your friend, they can whatever, be on leadership team with you, but there still can be suppression and control. Can you give me yeah. maybe an example or two of what that looks like? Because I'm, as you're talking, I'm constantly thinking, gosh, am I doing that? Have I done that? <laughs> How can I not do that? You know, even now, like, no, yeah, by yeah. leading the questions, am I exercising control? I just, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a little skittish, you know, just in the last few weeks, just like try, oh, trying yeah. to rethink, like, am I doing things that I'm blind to, even though I want to not do that? So g- give us an example of what that could look like. Yeah. Well, let me let me just emphasize, you know, John 1, 14, you know, Jesus comes in grace and in truth, right? So it's like he comes full of grace and truth. So I just want to be very, like, emphasize that even as we give truth, we fall into grace. Like, mm-hmm. and this is this is the point. We don't fall into condemnation. We fall into grace. Um in everything. So we don't trip ourselves into, uh, you know, kind of this masochistic self-flagellation of like white guilt. It's like, oh, I'm just so bad. I'm just so, you know, (laughs) and I think a lot of people assume that's what we desire. That helps us none. And it doesn't help any, anybody who's watching any either, but we fall into grace. And so grace gives us the freedom, the, the, the free grace of God, the, the rich, lavish grace gives us the freedom to, to be honest about our, our failures and to confront our, our mistakes and our weaknesses, knowing that um, Jesus will not love us less because we confess our racism. <laughs> <laughs> but he can handle it yeah. and then desires to redeem and restore. Um, and so it happens in a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways. So here's, here's one of the ways that um, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in... Um, interactions with friends who love me and care about me, but who talk over me in a place where they should be listening, mm. right? Who center themselves, even in the context of our, of our, of our conversation, they center themselves. So here's one of the ways that it happens. Um, you have friends who love me, care about me, and they're like, hey man, what you think about this? Hey man, help me with this. Hey man, what would you say to this? Hey man, what'd you do? And, and so we entered into the conversation with you, pulling from me, not asking me, how am I processing this? Is this a good time for me to do this? Is this, is this helpful? Is this you? There's basic care and consideration, but I'm their black friend, mm. right? And so when yeah. you're their black friend, what do you do? You get pulled on to be the expert. Yeah. 
you get pulled on to explain, you get pulled on to give, you get pulled on, but nobody checks up on your your heart. Nobody checks up, hey man, are you okay? Like, I know you've you've gone through there's a lot of corporate trauma right now. Yeah. Are you are you in a position to have this conversation? Is this something that you would even want to do right now? And if it's not, that's okay. But you calling, texting, hey man, help me work through this with my church. Okay, so here's 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 where it works out. You didn't do the work, but now I come in and I'm your shield. Yeah. I'm your shield now. Okay, so you haven't been doing any of this study over the past eight years. We've been recommending books how many times? I cannot divided by faith yeah. should give me one percent of their proceeds for how much I have recommended <laughs> that book. It, I'm, I'm telling you, Jamar should give me two percent of his proceeds because he's my brother. So I say two percent for him. I've recommended Color Compromise everywhere. We're going to recommend Divided by Faith everywhere for years. Mm-hmm. And y'all aren't reading? Y'all aren't doing the work? Mm-hmm. And then now you're like, oh, well, come help me. Yeah. Who am I to you? Like, what do you mean? Like, okay, so now in this moment, you want to trot me out. So here's the thing. Whenever whenever black blackness is selectively, selectively celebrated, so it's inconvenient when there's not a crisis. It's inconvenient when I can't be a translator for your black members. Mm-hmm. It's inconvenient when I can be a translator for your black audience, when I can't help the white people understand something. It's inconvenient whenever it doesn't benefit you. Wow. So see, that's just an unhealthy friendship and relationship in general, right? It doesn't have to be about race. That's just an unhealthy friendship and relationship. If I only called my graphic designer friends when I needed something, yeah. they'd be looking at me like, yo, what type of relationship is this? Oh, oh so you just see me as... And we're all guilty of that, but where the power dynamics shift and where the power dynamics um, oftentimes are lopsided um, and um, unjust and, and, and you know, filled with inequity, what tends to happen is that gets, that gets assumed in white and black circles in, in, um, in Christianity. And, and black people, we feel like we have to, because those are our brothers, those are our sisters, Oh no, I have to do this. And, and if I'm, if I'm not doing this, I'm being a bad friend. And mm. because historically it's been beat into our minds that we serve them. Wow. That's historic. That's historic for us. Oh, we should, we should be honored that we're asked to do this. Now, in the meantime, we're privately crushed. They have this moment where they absolve themselves of, Oh, well, I'm not racist. I had Tyler come over. <laughs> I Tyler preach at my church. Come on. I'm not racist. Yeah. You, you ain't heard him? You ain't heard him? Well, all the while, not addressing the the issues and pains of black members within their church, not addressing the issues and pains of people who they've silenced, who they've called all kinds of names behind closed doors, who they've said, yeah, they're irritant, but he's one of the good black ones. That's essentially what they're saying without saying it, right? Oh, help, translate it, translate it for us. I'm getting real, real, because I, I think you really want to know. So I'm getting, I'm, ve- I'm being oh, very, dude, you see what I'm saying? So it's Keep like, going. It, if, if it's like a scenario where, oh, I, I only serve you when it's selectively helpful, mm-hmm. people hit me up who haven't hit me up in years. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, you got any book recommendations? You got any this? You got any? I'm like, do you follow me? Like, are we are we friends? Like, of course, look at what I said like two years ago. But again, it's the assumption. And I don't mind it. Like, you reach out to me and I say, yes, I would like to be here. Like, that's not a, oh, you got to be here and you didn't beg me. You're like, come on, man, I really need you to. No, you're having these conversations and I actually want to have this conversation with yeah. you. So this is not like lording over me I by agree. being. 
But at the same time, people have to understand that, man, that feels extremely dehumanizing and tokenizing for us. Um, so that's one way. And then just natural marginalization. When you talk over over black people, when you assume you know their experience, when you get too familiar with them and you just start making off color jokes because you feel the freedom mm-hmm. to make those jokes in front of them because they know you. And so you use their, their your friendship as kind of a um, as kind of a safe space for you to vent racism because, you know, oh, no, they you know what I mean. Right. Oh, man, you know what I mean? It happens way too often. And people, people are like, oh, I would never do that. Yeah, you would. <laughs> yeah, you would. Don't say you wouldn't. Yes, you would. Yeah. Like, no, it happens all the time from pastors and spiritual leaders and theologians and seminarians and all these people who are trained. Just because you have that knowledge doesn't mean you can't violate a friendship and a relationship. So those are just some things to think about. First, I thank you for being honest, man. Seriously, I... The all general, man. I, I just don't have time. Yeah, I gotta forward. be, gotta be real, man. Oh, gotta totally, be raw, man. man. <laughs> yeah, it's the only way we're gonna move forward in these conversations. Um, um, is it? I'm, I'm as you're talking, I'm curious. Is is it a little like annoying, maybe, um, that it took all the events in the last four weeks for people to kind of say, "Ooh, I need to start reading books. I need to start thinking through this. I need to start having my black friend on my podcast." <laughs> like, is it? Um, people that haven't had a history of doing that and then now are kind of like, engaged. is that a little annoying or is it kind of like, well, better late than never? Or? <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's a mix of both. Right. Because I think, again, we, we trip into grace. We don't we don't trip into condemnation. And so, man, wherever people have awakenings and desire to truly change, we rejoice. You know, uh, we say, man, that's that's wonderful. That's phenomenal. Here's where it becomes annoying, though. Um, it doesn't become annoying when people talk about it or have the conversation. It becomes annoying in twofold when, number one, they only talk about it. And number two, when they center themselves as authorities on it, okay. that's when it becomes annoying. Okay. So when you only talk about it, you're not willing to address the problem and also not willing to take reparative steps. Right. So reparative steps means all the people that you lashed out on at Facebook should get a Facebook message of you repenting to them. Mm. You don't just get to jump from that to. Okay, I, I attacked them in 2016. I attacked them in 2017. 2018, 2019, I was just quiet on the issue. So I just said, oh, okay, well, Facebook, it's just a cesspool of everyone thinks they know what they know. And I'm just not going to talk about this anymore. And then in 2020, now you're saying, oh, no, this is wrong. And this is this and this is that. Well, we were trying to tell you that years ago. Yeah. But you called us community organizers. You called us Marxists. You said that black people were psychologically predisposed to crime. No, these are things people have said to me. I'm not just saying it like, oh, this really? is a no, let's let's show you really. Let's show you DMs and inboxes. Let's show you our emails. Okay, so now you care about this and now you want to lead your church in it because now you realize you can't ignore it. Mm. So it's again advantageous for you. It's wrong for you now to talk about something, not to talk about something everyone's talking about. It looks bad. Mm. Well, that's bad press. You can't have that. Yeah. But then what you didn't do is you didn't come back around and say, hey. I realized that many of our conversations, I was completely out of line. Or even asking, hey, do you feel like I was out of line when I pushed back on you? And people would be honest, like, yeah, you were. Mm-hmm. And giving them the freedom to repent and repair. Mm-hmm. And then say, hey, is there any way I can make you whole in this situation? Because it's obviously probably a, an issue that I'm centering myself in this conversation. And so that's, I mean, that's one thing, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when they just talk about it. But then another thing is, 
um, when they censor themselves in the conversation. So now they, they're the experts, like they're the people who just, and it's like, there are people who give their lives to this work and who have been threatened for this work. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so glad Jamar is winning now. I'm so glad people like Latasha Morrison are winning um, on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's not about those accolades to those people. It's not. It's just an acknowledgement that their work has been valuable and they've been faithful. And they've been faithful in little things. Now God is giving them much. They've been faithful in private. And now God is rewarding in public. And so there are, but there are dozens of people in your local area. I think of the black pastors who have been advocating in places. When you go to um, vigils for black men who are shot and killed by police, and there are no other pastors there, but there are black pastors who are present. Hmm. You know, I think of the activists who have been consistent in this work, who have been trying to meld faith and justice for years, for decades, and now everyone's on the train and now everyone has something to say about it, but they've been faithful. We need to honor them. We need to honor them. We need to listen to them. I think of the inconvenient voices, mm-hmm. the people who are saying the things that everyone's thinking, but no one's willing to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've been saying it for years. Honor them. And I think what, what, shows, what shows a truly transformed heart is when we're willing to say, hey, I'm not going to, and I say this to pastors all the time, man, I think it's great that you want to have a conversation with me. I think that's awesome. But if I don't know you, I'm kind of skeptical skeptical about having a conversation with you. And I'm also kind of feeling like you want to explain me to your members. So I would encourage you to call this person, that person, this person, that person, and have them preach a Sunday at your church. Doesn't have to be me. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm pushing myself out of that conversation. I won't do it. So call one of these five people in town who are great preachers and who have been talking about this for years and pay them to preach to your church. Hmm. That's where, that's how I know you're real. Hmm. That's how I know it's yeah. serious yeah. because then it's like, well, I can't control him. I can control you in a conversation, but, but I can't, I can't control you in the pulpit. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? Right. And I had a pastor sit down with me recently. He was like, man, I had um, a new pastor would come in town, black pastor. And he was like, man, I had him preach just on racial reconciliation and the emails I got, and the phone calls I got. And I'm like, well, you see, if you would have had a conversation with you, would have been able to steer that conversation and control it. But because you had him preach the word, now people are like, oh, that's political and that's anti-cop and it's this and it's that. You see? And so now you have something you know, you know where your church really is at. Yeah. Now you know what you can address. You Long mean- answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you got, man? I don't want to take more time than... Uh, I got like 20 more minutes. I'm good. Okay. You mentioned white guilt and that that's not (laughs) the right response. And yeah, I I am seeing, um, it seems like a growing number. Um, Maybe just just more public now, but like white people kind of promoting that kind of white guilt. I'm reading a book right now. Oh, well, this is on my, I I haven't read this one yet. Uh, White guilt (laughs) by Shelby Steele. Yeah, Um, yeah. I know nothing about the book, um, but I'm reading the other one, White Fragility, which I'm having some serious problems. Yeah, two 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 broad uh, spectrum differences, yes. ideologically. And that's notes. how it works. Like, <laughs> I want to, and one's by a white woman who's on one side, and then uh, Shelby's black, I think, right? Or yeah, yeah very uh, very black, very conservative. Yeah. Oh, very, oh okay. See, I do. I don't. I just somebody mentioned, hey, if you're reading that one, you should read this one. I'm like, all right. Um, do you, so yeah, I don't know. I. I the kind of like, for lack of better terms, hyper progressive, hyper woke, white, um, 
voices. I, I don't know. I just I, I'm having some problems with at least some of how they're going about the whole race conversation. But um, so what what are the specific problems that you're feeling? Well, like, I, in your I, heart? Just, I don't even know Curious. if I can speak. I'm just because I'm I'm a slow thinker, man. I, I don't like to. I like right. to think I and I try to listen with I try to listen charitably to like say I want to know where they're coming from what do they say not not begin with I think this is um, the one so white fragility by Robin D'Angelo you know it's like number mm -hmm. one on Amazon mm -hmm. so of course I had to read it yeah um, I mean for what just from yeah I don't know I um, there's the broad brush generalization uh, you don't yeah you don't have to you don't have to say you don't have to say yeah. Well, that's just, I'm thinking out loud. Like I, I just sweeping generalizations that, and maybe it's because I was raised in like a fundamentalist Christian background where we did that all the time. <laughs> oh, those amillennials. Right, and right, even right. to this day, like the word amillennial has a negative hint to it because it was all amillennials are this, um, all yeah, old yeah. earth creation, you know, <laughs> all, all, yeah. 6,000, 6,000 years. Come on, man. What's that? <laughs> 6,000 years, man. Come on. That's, that's the young earth, man. So, so I, 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 and I really, so that's, it's a little bit tr not triggering, but I mean, lowercase t triggering for right. me of like, when I see these broad brush generalizations, I just like, Ooh, that's just, I don't, I don't resonate with mm. that. And, um, but, but some good, some stuff she's saying is like, man, that's really helpful. You know, being alert to how your group, your social context inevitably mm -hmm. shapes how you think, feel and everything like th those are to me, that's sociologically sure. just sure. obvious, you know, well, not obvious to me, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm only three chapters in, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you read it or what do you, well, you I mean, on it or? I have not. And you know, for me, typically, um, if I'm reading books on race, I'm gonna read from black speakers, like black writers, you know, and, and it's not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with reading Robin D'Angelo. Like I think, I'm not part of her target audience, I don't believe, right? So, <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't really people. think of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not part of her target audience, and so because of that, I don't typically like read those books. And so, typically, what I would say is, you know, different people have different disciplines, and so you take, for example, Jamar. Jamar is a historian, mm -hmm. so his discipline is going to be a little bit different than someone else's. Um, you know, someone like. Um, I hesitate to use names, but you know, you take someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates, he's a journalist, right? So he's gonna he's gonna speak in that regard. So when he did the case for reparations for the Atlantic, he didn't provide concrete solutions to the problem that he has spent twenty thousand words expressing. You know, why? Because he said that's not my that's not my job. Like okay. I'm a I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist. Like I'm not gonna tell you what to do. I'm I made a suggestion, but I didn't give you a how to steps of okay, here's how reparations should look. You know, let's just have the let's pass H.R. 40 to have the commission to do a study. Right. Um, so different people have different disciplines. Right. So I try to I try to interpret people through the disciplines of kind of where they're at and who they're speaking to. But I will say this. Um, black Christians and black people in general are skeptical of conservatives and progressives. Hmm. We're skeptical of. Democrats and Republicans. Hmm. We're skeptical of woke white people and racist white people. We're skeptical of them all. Here's what we recognize. We recognize that just because you, you are an advocate in one space doesn't mean that you're not doing any of the problems that I've mentioned. Hmm. Right? <laughs> doesn't mean that. And we don't look at people in that way. We know that advocates 
uh, can also oppress us. Mm-hmm. And um, adversaries um, can also um, can also treat us with inferiority. We know that. We know that happens on both sides. So yeah. whenever people are talking about, man, you know, you just y'all always vote this way and do this and, yeah. and y'all think this way and you're only coming from this perspective. It's like, well, don't mistake our pragmatism at the voting booth yeah. for our cosign <laughs> of a group of people. We see who they are. Yeah. We just they give us a chance. Yeah. Like that's how we think. Oh, they just give us a chance. <laughs> but they're going to have problems, too. And they do have problems yeah. and we can chronicle their problems. They're going to give us a chance. The other people, they don't even let us in the door. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't even have anybody advocating on our our behalf. They're not even going to listen to us. So here's what I think about, you know, from a white guilt perspective and a white uh, progressive perspective. Again, it doesn't do us any good. Like one of the things that that we're dealing with now is, you know, the NFL is talking about doing the black national anthem for week one. And, you know, Aunt Jemima was taking off the syrup bottle and, um, yeah, what do you think about we don't that? care about any of that. What do you think about all that stuff? Just... We, don't, we don't care. We do not care. It's not what we asked for. It's <laughs> not what we asked for. And one of the functions of one of the, the functions Tony Morrison said of racism in, in a racist society is distraction. It's one of the primary functions of racism. It's to distract us from what we asked for. We did not ask for that. We want people to arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. That's what we want. That's what we specifically asked for. That is what we are pushing for. We're pushing for convictions. We're pushing for broad police reform. Some of us in different ways. Some of us defund the police. Others of us, police reform. Mm -hmm. We didn't ask for any of that. So I think what what happens a lot of times is uh, progressives can also be guilty of of white normativity as well. They just do it in different ways. And they just do it in saying, we know better than what y'all, oh, we know what you're saying, or we assume what you're saying, or yeah, this is what you want. We don't want that. We didn't ask for it. We didn't. It's good. It's good that the Washington football team is is probably going to change their their mascot, right? That's a good thing. Great, awesome. Again, that's not part of this, though. That's not part of what we said. This is, um, and it's great. I mean, Mississippi took down the state flag, Confederate monuments. Again, that's great, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, I completely support it, but at the same time, it's also a, a question of. We're not trying to make the world um, a code-free place for um, people who might have, um, you know, said politically incorrect things. So now everybody has to say the right thing and be politically correct and do all this. Uh, that's not what we're trying to do. We want justice. We want equity. We want justice to roll down. That's what we want, Amos Five. That's what we want. Yeah. So I think a lot of times whenever people come to me like, yo, I'm so sorry. I'm this. I'm that. I'm like, bro. I, I appreciate your sentiment. I appreciate your sympathy, but that's not what I asked you to do. Mm-hmm. Like take that sorry and turn that into um, solidarity in your local church. Take that sorry and turn that into solidarity by writing your county commissioner and telling him that the stuff he says online is out of bounds. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with that locally. Mm-hmm. You know, take that sorry and turn it into solidarity and write your congressman. And tell him that he's ignored us for far too long and that you're not going to let him ignore us in the next election. Turn it into solidarity so that justice can roll down. I don't care about you. Sorry. Man, it's great. Deal with, repent to God. <laughs> <laughs> repent to God and advocate for me, please. Yeah. Right. That's that being very honest. That's what we care about. So that's, sure. That's... All the all the wokeness and the progressiveness. Yeah. We couldn't care less. Like, cool. <laughs> you guys, you guys are doing this and. Yeah. 
all right, man, do it. But we want to see, we want to see your actions. We want to see your budget. You know, all these, all these companies now they're putting out these statements and they're like, oh, black lives matter to us and blackout Tuesday and all this. And we're like, great. Now let's see your board of directors. Let's see your executive team. How many of us are in places and positions of power? I'll, I'll never forget. Recently, it was it was very interesting. Um, uh, Lecrae was at you know this very controversial uh, conversation with Louis Giglio and and Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick Fil A, and you know much can be said about the words that Louis Giglio used and and even Dan Cathy used in in the context of that conversation and and what should have happened, what did happen. But there was this one moment that was really striking for me when was when Dan Cathy said, "Man, we just need to shine people's shoes." Like he told this story about a a black. Um, older black man or woman. And anyway, there was this this symbol of uh, solidarity years ago where someone came down and they shined their shoes and washed their feet or did something. He gets up and goes over and, you know, shines Lecrae's sneakers. And Lecrae's kind of looking down like, yay. And then, and then when Dan Cathy got up, he's like, yeah. And, and, and I need Chick-fil-A stock too. <laughs> What about some Chick-fil-A stock? You know, and Dan Cathy just just like, good. Yeah, we need shine shoes and all this. It's almost like, okay, these symbolic gestures make you feel better. Yeah. But the reality is they don't change our lives. So <laughs> and that's they don't exactly, do what's necessary, right? <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. And I but I I didn't I you were the first person that has kind of put it so you've drawn out kind of how I felt. Cause I don't know if my feeling was correct. I'm like, well, maybe it is good. I don't know. It just feels like it feels like it's making that person feel good to, or the company, you know, taking Aunt Jemima off or what, all these things. It's like, that doesn't, I don't, I don't know that. And I feel, sometimes I felt almost like bad. Like it, I'm just not impressed with this stuff. Is that, is that my racism coming out, you know, or is it? Well, and just, I, I would say, I would say it's good to always remove symbols of oppression and injustice. It's good to do that. Like it's good to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good to place them in their proper context. Right. So, you know, we're having this conversation locally about, you know, a Confederate monument that was in the early 1900s was basically put in place. There was an expose that recently came out based upon a coup of white supremacists who basically, basically, you know, literally um, strong armed the local government to putting it this Confederate monument right in the center of downtown. And then in the 70s, there was a KKK march in broad daylight with with hoods and everything in the 70s. Right at this at this Confederate monument, um, and so I think it's good to remove and tear down the idols of white supremacy, but again, it, repent and repair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, feel sorry and stand in solidarity. Yeah. Like, talk about justice and do justice, please. Like, we don't. If if the symbols are all you stop at, you'll miss the fact that we weren't. Racism isn't a isn't a symbolic evil. It's a substantive evil that has shaped our lives and harmed our bodies and robbed money from us and redlined us out of communities um, and gentrified us out of places where we grew up. No, no, this is a practical evil um, and denied us health care and denied us proper education and and killed us in the streets with impunity. No, correct the system. Don't just, you know, tear down a symbol. What would you say to um, this might be from conservatives, mostly white, but like, you know, they would hear you say all that and say, well, gosh, I mean, like that. Look at all the progress we've made, you know, um, 
you know, we're, we're decades after the civil rights era. Redlining is no longer a thing. I don't, I mean, it's a, it would be illegal, right, to redline now, I think. I don't know. Or we have a black president. Had a black president. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Feel free to jump. Well, I'll, so, I'll so just, you've I'll, heard that narrative, I'm sure. What would you say? Oh, man. Um, how would you respond to that? Um, I would say that Malcolm X um, has put it well when he said, if you stick a knife nine inches in someone's back and remove it three, you don't call that progress. You pulled it out three inches. Hmm. Knife still in my back. <laughs> Here's what I would say, man, is I know it seems like there's progress, but progress is certainly in the eye of the people who haven't been disenfranchised. Progress is in the eye of the people who are not affected. Um, and what tends to happen is the the winners and the people in, in power, they control the narrative of what progress looks like. Um, think of Zacchaeus, right? So Zacchaeus has this personal transformation with Jesus. He's like, man, anybody who I've defrauded, I'm going to restore them fourfold. Like it's the Shalom principle, right? I'm going to restore them to where they should have been. I'm going to restore things to where they should be, right? Not where I think is acceptable to me not what's safe to me, not what's a symbolic good to me. I'm going to restore them to wholeness. And the question is, are, is our community whole? Not has there been progress according to your metrics, but what would make our community whole after over the course of over 200 years of slavery, over 100 years of Jim Crow um, segregation? Like, what would make us whole in that regard? And that's the question that Christians should be asking. Not just simply the question of progress, but if you're a believer in Jesus, um, you want to restore people that you've defrauded to wholeness. Um, and I think that's what justice looks like. And I think that's what is required. So all that symbolic stuff, I think a lot of times people just think about what they think progress should look like and does look like. And I'm, I'm, I'm very honest and raw in, in this conversation and, and have been for a while that, listen, it doesn't reach the communities you think it reaches and if you can say there's progress, but then you still, okay, if there's progress, go live in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Would you live in our neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. Would you take, would you let your kids go to our schools? Why not? Thought there's been progress. <laughs> Why not? Your kids should be able to grow up right where we live, right? <laughs> progress. <laughs> but it's like, oh no, well, you know, I want my kids to go to the best schools. Yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is there are there's a difference between the standard of education in the suburbs and in the hood. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me there's not progress. Show your work, prove. Mm -hmm. Okay, live there and then tell me there's progress. Mm -hmm. Live in a food desert and then tell me, we're great. Everyone's doing so well. <laughs> you don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables. You don't have access to a nutritious diet live in a food insecure area, and then tell me that there's progress. No, it's not progress. <laughs> you can say it's progress because it doesn't affect you. So yeah, that's what I would say. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Don't want to get too raw. I'll stop there. But that's what I say. Listen, because here's the thing. But here's the thing, uh, doctor. It's, it's, it's so important that we have to tell the truth to people. We need to tell people the truth. And what we've been doing is we've been doing patty cake we just been playing patty cake with this. No, this is this is a serious issue that affects real people. It affects real bodies. We are in danger and we are being killed. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not here to be like, okay, well, you know, just do this and let me make something rhyme. No, repent and repair because I'm telling you, it's not a game with us. It's not a game in our communities. Um, and when you see it, and when you see people get killed, I've seen people get killed in our communities by police and nothing happened to them. <laughs> I'm here for, man, well, what do you think about this? What do you th-? I'm like, guys, yeah. repent and repair immediately because literal lives hang in the balance for that. What, what, would, what would true progress look like to you? So I think true progress, um, you know, I'm part of an organization locally. Um, it's called Achieve Escambia. It's a um, Escambia County is my county, and it is a cradle to career um, readiness organization. Um, and I'm the equity representative for Achieve Escambia, and it's all about kindergarten readiness, career readiness. Um, and we say our in our equity statement that equity exists when race and and economics are no longer a reliable predictor of success. Right. So when the disparities can tell you if you are born a black child in 32505, if you are born a black child in our zip code, you are this much more, we can predict your level of success. We can predict whether you become an opportunity child. We can predict um, whether or not you go to college. We can predict whether or not you get a, a postgraduate degree. We can predict all those types of things. Um, we can predict your vocation, we can predict your, your median income, and we can do that in our in our community. Just knowing that you're a black child, you are far more likely to deal with these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, we're 40, we're ranked 41st out of 67 counties in the state of Florida in child well-being. Wow. Uh, and that's a, that's a problem to us. 16% of our kids are food insecure, which means at some point in time in the year, they will not know where their next meal comes from. Like, so I think progress looks like when race and economics and where someone is born is no longer a reliable predictor of their success. That's when equity exists. Um, now, progress in the church, um, I think it looks like when there is when there is a significant step of repentance that says <laughs> the wealth and access that exists in white churches now can be reasonably expected to exist in black and brown churches as well. That the wealth and progress and the expansion and the land ownership and the budget of a white church is also going to be present in most, if not all, black churches. And the reason that's important is I think, I don't think it's just a, it's, it's obviously not just a, a issue of money, but what we're getting at here is resources that flow through black churches, they historically, they reach black communities mm-hmm. because black churches have been hubs of Healthcare, economics, education, food provision, um, man, even lawyer services and job training, uh, recidivism, you know, against the recidivism rate, um, you know, transition homes, all these things flow naturally through black. And I I think of 10 black churches off the top of my head that do this work that aren't getting funded. Right. So they have to have resources outside. So they have to go to the state for resources or whatever. And what would it look like for progress to say the SBC says, okay, we don't just care about providing 10 scholarships or five scholarships for our students that go to, you know, SBC schools and seminaries. And we're like, that's our act. That's reparations. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to say, we're going to write a check um, of however much to this particular black denomination that has churches that are actually reaching black communities and desire to reach black communities. And so the money's going to get to them, which reaches real people. 
right? And so I think progress looks like us recalibrating our, our, our metrics of success and recalibrating our interaction with racial reconciliation, not as an act of, act of charity, but as the capacity for solidarity. Would it be would it be patronizing for like what as you're going back to the you know black churches and the community work that they're doing? Is it patronizing for white wealthy churches to say, hey, we want to help fund this? Is that uh, is that excusing their actual involvement, or would that be would that be a, a possible step forward? No, and I, I think here's here's the thing that people have to understand is like it 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 varies what is needed in different communities, but the the thing is we go and we ask them what they need. Okay. What do you need from us? Okay. Do you need resources that fund this? Do you need hands? Does it look right for us to come in and work alongside you? Is that going to be a trigger for the community? Right. Is the community going to look at that with inherent skepticism? Um, do you need um, resource? Do you need expertise? Sometimes it's not that. And this is the thing about you know white Christians, white churches. Sometimes they think it's like, oh, just write a check. Other times it's not about writing a check. Set us up with your accountant. Like, do you know anybody who does this? Do you know anybody who does that? Do you know anybody who can who can do this? Because you have you have connections to a network that is totally different than ours. And because you have connections to a network that's totally different than ours, can we connect to that same network? And then now we don't need a handout from you. Mm-hmm. We just need a connection. And then we can do the legwork. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of times it's like, man, people are looking for a handout. No, it's it's you have all these connections. You have 10 people in your phone who make more than our combined budget, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that's great. That's awesome. Praise God. But at the same time, we would like to practically do some things that reach our community. And some of the people who write the checks over there can help us. And maybe they can connect us with the right people. Maybe we can partner with them. But but that may be what somebody needs. But you go to them and you ask them, hey, what do I, What? how can I help? What would be dignifying for you? What would be helpful for you? Um, what do you need? What would make what would make this community whole? Mm-hmm. And how can we work on that? And and we don't have to be at the center of it and it doesn't have to become our big We did it. First Baptist this, we did it. <laughs> we partnered with Shekinah Glory Church and it's like, yeah. Yeah. Right? So again, we don't have to center ourselves in it. We can serve and it we don't have to get any of the credit for it. If you choose to acknowledge us, you do. If you don't, that's okay. We're just wanting to serve to make sure that the community is whole. And it varies in different settings. But when you come to people and you ask them what they need, they'll tell you. Okay. That's super helpful, man. I know there's probably people listening that are asking the question, what they, what can I do that would be helpful? Do you have time for just one more quick question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, would love to get your thoughts on I, And this comes from, I hear it from polit- uh, conservative political commentators. I can't remember which one, if it's just one or several, yeah. whatever, but they... Going back to the poverty thing, would love to get heard you- one. You heard them all. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I and I and I I don't want the question itself to be triggering to you, but I would love to hear your <laughs> thoughts on it, man. Um, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's okay, do it. going back to the poverty and the disproportionate um, levels of poverty between white and black communities. Um, what would you say to someone who says, "Look, if you." Um, Go go going to like going to like moral agency, individual moral agency. Even if you acknowledge yeah. some societal um, oppression and, and hurdles, uh, there still is moral agency. So if you graduate high school, right. you don't get your girlfriend pregnant, and you get a job, those three things, you're extremely unlikely to live in poverty, no right. matter your color. Have you? I don't know if you've yeah. heard that, or, or what you would. And and it does deal with you know the the. Sing, yeah. the 
you know, uh, that the family is kind of, I think even Obama said, right, that the family is a, a huge piece that needs to be um, uh, a, a huge focus in terms of lifting people out of poverty. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it is hilarious what people think everyone has access to. Um, I'll give you an example, right? So, um, one of the things that we've been doing with the organization that I'm a part of educationally is, um, you know, we want to set up what we call a parent university. So this is a, a actual way for twice a, a month, we would actually spend all day with a group of parents. We bust them in, spend all day with a group of parents, um, feed them and actually give them job training, life skills, um, in, in, in typically under service, under resource communities. Um, so this is everything from, you know, how to raise a healthy child, um, to, you know, how to do your taxes to, you know, um, how to start your own business, how to, but basically training them and equipping them on how to raise healthy children in an under-resourced community. And so one of the things that, you know, I'm in the room as a leadership council, um, you know, I'm in the room with people who run big organizations locally. Um, you know, the mayor's in the room, uh, you know, chief deputy is in the room, you know, head of the power company, head of the, you know, internet, top internet company, all these things, telecommunications. It's just a lot of money in the room. People are like, yeah, what we need to do is we need to set them up and make sure that they have access to sign up to all this. And so we need to do a media blitz and we need to do this and we need to do that. And let's do a social media blitz and run a social media campaign. And and, and one of the local service workers, she raised her hand. She says, hey, this is all great, but you're assuming they have access to Wi-Fi. Why did you assume that? You're assuming they have computers. Why did you assume that? And they were like, well, what should we do? We have to go door to door. <laughs> and they were like, what? In, a, in, in 2020? Why do we need to go door? See, because in their mind, because they have access to it, everyone does. Right. <laughs> in their mind, because they, they have it, everyone has it. Everyone has access to it. Oh, it's just, it's internet. I mean, who doesn't have internet? Who doesn't have an, an iPad? Who doesn't have a smartphone? Who doesn't have a laptop, right? It's just in their mind. That's just what they assume. And for many people, especially white Christians, they assume the communities, they assume the reality of communities they've never stepped foot in. And so here's the thing. Generationally, my parents were cycle breakers. Generationally, my parents were the first people in their family to graduate from college. Generationally, my parents grew up in two different states, but grew up in abject poverty. My family, my parents are that statistic that, you know, that statistic, even not knowing their fathers, that statistic. Right. Um, but I'm not. But my life and my opportunities are totally different than their life and their opportunities. They had to literally claw themselves out of poverty. They had to overcome all kinds of systemic things, even growing up in Section 8 housing. They had, to, they had to overcome so much more than what I have to overcome. And so if you compare, you know, oftentimes the people who say these types of things, um, especially the black conservative commentators, the black conservative commentators, what they tend to say um, they they don't tend to live in our communities. They tend to live in in advantaged communities. And so 
they feel like the same thing. It doesn't it doesn't have to be just a white conservative commentator. Black conservative commentators compare white normative expression in the same way. And then on a secondary note, I think a lot of um there has been a consistent stream, and there's there's too much to get into to here, but there's been a consistent stream of uh, thought since we were enslaved Africans were brought over in, in 1619 that black people are intrinsically lazy, mm-hmm. that they are um, promiscuous, mm-hmm. that they are um, not hardworking, that they're unintelligent. And so when I hear that, I hear all the marks that a, that a, a plantation slave owner would have said about enslaved Africans. They don't work hard enough. Oh, you know they're going to come after our women. Oh, you know if they they don't even know how to read. Look at them. Oh, oh, they just all they want to do is they just want to sit on their behinds and they're just like, oh, they're runaway welfare queens. They're gaming the system. You know what we need? We need law and order. And so what you hear is the centuries-long education that white people feel led to make broad declarations about our community and tell us who we are and who we aren't. Mm-hmm. And you'll see it all the time. Flip on any conservative station. When it comes to black people, they're telling us what we're not doing. Look at how many of their kids are in poverty. 70% of their kids grow up fatherless. What are you talking about? Never step foot in our communities. Mm-hmm but parroting the racial stereotypes. So when people talk about progress, I'm like, okay, go back and read this. Go back and read that. Go back and read what they used to say about us. And you tell me, what did George George Whitfield say? Their, their bodies, black bodies are built for the heat. <laughs> go, they're built, no, they're built for this. Come on, go back and go back and tell me that you don't hear the same exact things that they used to say about us when they enslaved us. And I'll eat my hat. No, it's the same thing. It's just polished language. Wow. Oh, well, if you just do this and if you just do that. In other words, if y'all just stop being lazy, if y'all just stop getting all these women pregnant, and if y'all just worked hard enough, y'all don't even want to work. You want a handout, don't you? Hmm. And it's all the same. And Christians parrot it. And then this is why history is so important. This is why I read books like Color of Compromise about it by faith. Because what it does is it, 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 it reveals to you the parroting. It reveals to you the parroting that you have unconsciously, subconsciously replicated um, over the course of of decades. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. Heavy note to end on, but hey, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> any any final words, man, for our audience? Uh, I know they're probably head spinning. Probably have more questions than they came in with. And any final words, man? You got the floor. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I should say anything else, man. Uh, the, the, the words, the many words, said is present. So I probably. <laughs> why, why did I promote? Nah, I, could I promote your ministry here? So the witness uh, com. Yeah. That's the website. The witness Your yeah. podcast yeah. is uh, past the mic, right? That's correct. Yeah. So the witnessbcc.com, pass the mic. You want some resources? I'll just give some off the top of my head. Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Um, Divided by Faith by Christian Smith and Michael Emerson. Um, the Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. Phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, uh, Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. Mm-hmm. Those are some, or, you know, Be the Bridge is definitely a great organization to follow. Um, 
man, arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. <laughs> you know, however you can, however you can get involved in sending spamming people, you know, to do that. That's really important. Um, but hey, I don't want to, I don't want to absolve people of looking in their local communities. That's why I'm always careful to give certain resources and organizations, because the money that you give to a national organization like the Witness or Be the Bridge probably should go to your local. Um, you know, food shelter and food bank. It probably should go to the people who are doing it on the ground, your local activists who have bills. There's not money in this. Even though we're on the New York Times bestseller list, don't get it twisted. We're not rich. Um, so yeah, just, it, it should probably go to the activists. So look in your local community and serve the people who are in your neighborhood and you'll find stuff to get involved in. But thank you for having me, doctor. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor uh, to be on your yeah. show. Thank you so much, man. Seriously, I, I've learned a ton and uh, I'd love to have you back on whenever you feel like you want to come back on. Just let me know. Yeah, anytime, anytime. If you enjoyed the content of this conversation, I don't want you to give to Theology Navra. I want you to go to the witnessbcc.com and support the ministry of Tyler Burns, Jamar Tisby, and others who are part of The Witness. They're doing incredible work. And for this episode, if you feel like, oh my gosh, I want to support Preston. Oh my gosh, this is a great conversation. It was really helpful. I want to support his ministry. Then I want you to stop um, right there. And I want you to redirect those funds to support Tyler and uh, Jamar and the other folks at The Witness. Maybe even contact them, as he even said in this conversation. Maybe reach out to them and say, hey, would love to support what you guys are doing. What do you need? Rather than assuming that they need money or advice or whatever, please, please, please reach out to them, contact the witness and um, see how you can best come alongside their ministry and support them until next time on the theology and raw. I hope you have a great week.